As always, it's a joy to be with you. If you're with us this morning, we're landing the plane on our series on uh, on First Peter, kind of rounding things out. I want to thank you for being with us uh, in this journey over the past what's it been two two and a half months, something like this. Looking looking at these uh, looking at these texts, and I, I think journey is actually probably a good metaphor for for what this has been. It's also a good metaphor for our, our lives. And uh, if Peter was with us this morning then he might use a similar word. Uh, he might use the word pilgrimage. He is, uh, we've said many times over the past course of these past few weeks that, uh, that what Peter writes for us here in First Peter is a, is a pilgrim manual. He, he says that we are elect, elect exiles on a pilgrimage through alien territory as we journey home together. And so what he is doing is he's really engaging the nitty gritty of our lives. He is pressing hope into the places that are uh, are sad into he's pressing hope into our despair he's pressing hope into the places where we're afraid and that's really what peter's doing again in this passage he's offering what i would like to call summary truths of what he most badly wants us to remember as we journey together as god's people Let's look together. This is 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 6 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Humble yourselves, therefore, that under the mighty hand of God, so that, until the, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, what, uh, what, what wonderful words given to us. Thank you for giving us your word by which we can know you. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that, that as we arrange our lives under your word, that you would be both magnified in the world and in our very own hearts. And that you would help me, your servant, to love these friends well. Let every word I say be in fidelity to your word. And Heavenly Father, I pray that I would honor you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So at its core, when we read First Peter, we're really reading a pastoral letter. Peter is... An apostle, but he's also a, a loving pastor who writes with a pastoral burden to these people. And over the past several weeks, it's had me thinking about uh, a pastoral letter that was 
written to me years ago when I was a much younger man. Uh, there was a, a pastor who had loved me very, very well for many, many years. Uh, Jesus used him to draw me to himself. Uh, I had many life-shaping conversations with him, and so many memories are still vivid in my own mind and in my own heart because because he was a part of them. And there came a time when our lives were moving in separate directions. I was at the ripe old age of 22. I was going back to finish my undergrad degree, <laughs> and uh, and he was moving off to another part of the country to plant a church. And so he did uh, what good pastors do sometimes. He wrote to me with a pastoral burden because he knew that there were challenges that I was going to face uh, with the, with the, with many of the choices that I had made for where the my life was headed. Um, he knew that there were, he knew better than I did, uh, certain challenges that he would face. And I wish that I would face, and I wish I had a copy of that letter to show you, like a crumpled up piece of paper that I took with me, uh, wherever I went. And I, maybe I could show it to you and like quote some things. Uh, but I lost it somewhere, sadly. Um, but if I remember well what he wrote, not much of it was new. All of it was profound, but much of it was simply repeating to me things he wanted me to remember about what was true about who God is, what is true about who I am in Jesus. He wanted certain things to be embedded deep in my heart that I could draw on them in good times, but especially in hard times. And that's one reason First Peter is such a treasure to us. Because Peter is writing a pastoral letter with a pastoral burden given to people who he knows good times are coming, but, but hard times are also coming. And he is working to embed something important deep in the hearts of these people for them to draw on, for them to remember sharply during good times, but especially in hard times. And so what we're going to talk, I think you're going to see this in this passage, that he's not really introducing new concepts, but he's giving us things for us to remember. And I'm going to name three of them here for you. He calls us to remember God's character. He calls us to remember God's promises. And finally, he calls us to remember God's people, God's character, his promises, and his people. First, his character, there's a high call that's given to us in verses 6 and 7. He says, both humble yourself before God and cast all your anxieties on him. And then Peter goes on to explain that that's really only possible. Like that feels like a high call. How does that, how does that work for us? Well, Peter says that it's possible because of God's character. Look at verse 6. First, he notes God's strength. He says that the Lord operates with a mighty hand so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So not only is God transcendently powerful and strong, he also uses that strength on your behalf. Well, why? Because of what we see in verse 7. This is so sweet and so simple, yet so hard to trust. He says, because he cares for you. He cares for you. And so what you see lined up here right alongside each other are both God's strength and his tenderness, both exercised on behalf of his people right alongside each other. That's a rare combination, isn't it? 
I say that because most of us, I would even submit that most of us use this grid of analyzing someone's strength and their tenderness when we look at the people around us. And most of the time, what we see is a surplus of one and a deficit of the other. Uh, The other day, I was uh, listening to a podcast. (laughs) I was listening to a podcast where uh, political experts, and they really were like even balanced uh, pundits, that were, uh, that were analyzing potential presidential candidates, and they were using this grid right here to talk about these, uh, these potential candidates. They, were t- they talked about some of these people that were very strong, that, uh, that weren't afraid to fight, that could stand up with backbone. They operated with real strength. But, but did they really care about the people that they were trying to serve? Like, that, that was the question they were asked. And, and on, on the other side, they saw candidates who, who really cared deeply about people, but they didn't know if they could trust them to stand up and fight with backbone. There was this rare combination of, of strength and tenderness that we're looking for in people all of the time, but it's so often hard to find. I mean, think about the people in your life, like the most important people in your life. Think about your best friends. Or if you're married, think about your spouse. Think about your boss. I mean, usually, usually we see someone who, who, who is either, you know, strong and we wish was a little more tender or someone who is soft hearted for which we're grateful for, but we wish we're a little smart. I hear, I hear people talk about their parents. Grown people talk about their parents this way all the time, especially fathers. Fathers get mentioned a lot. I often hear people say, my father was a strong man and he fought with conviction and integrity, fought for us. But I just wish he was a little more tender or the other way around. I hear this all the time. And so here's what I want you to hear. What Peter is saying is really important. If we're to understand God's character, when, when, uh, when God becomes your father, you receive a father who is both strong and tender. That he is transcendently powerful and eminently caring. He is one to be feared and he is one to be embraced all at the same time. And this is going to be essential for us if we're going to do what Peter is calling us to do. Look at what the passage says. We humble ourselves before him because we know that in God's presence, pride just seems silly, right? We humble ourselves before him uh, and we cast our anxieties upon him. And Peter's clear that we have things to be anxious about. He tells us that we have an adversary. Did I say adversary? Adversary? I don't know how to pronounce that word. It's one or the other. We have an enemy who who prowls around like a lion seeking to devour. But he's also telling us. That all of our pride and all of our anxieties find their answer in the character of God himself. Now listen, if we're going to lay down our pride at the feet of God, it can only become because we look at him as all-powerful. That, he really, that we really believe that he operates with a mighty hand. But the same is also true of our anxieties and our fears. One scholar said that the language here really is just the way it sounds, that we cast our anxieties on him. It's like you cast your anxieties on him like you're throwing something in the trunk 
of a car. That's what Peter is talking about. And anyone who's familiar, as I am, with the almost magnetic pull of anxiety would ask the question, like, how in the world is that possible? Well, listen, it's like it starts here. It, start, it at least starts with the belief that God really does care about you. That your concerns are his concerns, that his spirit is sensitive to your spirit. We, Psalm 55 says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. We trust the power of the Lord for his hand is mighty and we trust the faithfulness of the Lord for our concerns are really his concerns too. That's what we're told here. And I think this is particularly important because of the ways that pride and anxiety, listen, pride and anxiety are not mutually exclusive things. They actually cooperate with each other deep in the interior of our souls. By that, I mean, they come to us often right at the same time. Because at the same time, anxiety is telling us you're not enough. It's your pride that's telling you that you need to be. And, uh, and we also, uh, and, and so what it can lead to is a, is a deep sort of heart restlessness that we often carry with us wherever we go. And that heart restlessness can drive us to overwork. It can drive us to overperform. It can drive us to hide, to hide our weaknesses. Pride and anxiety resonate with each other in the interior of our souls and they drive us to this heart restlessness and uh, and the invitation that Peter is giving to us here is one of rest because he's reminding us the truth of God's character. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. It's his character given to you as his people that invites us to rest. And if his character invites us to rest, certainly his promises do. And as we come to a close, one of the patterns that you've seen throughout this letter is that, uh, that Peter is boldly challenging us to trust the promises of God given to us through Jesus Christ. One chapter, one passage after another. He is not squeamish to us and talking about suffering, but he's also profoundly bold and explaining to us the promises that we live under every day as God's people. Chapter 1, he talked about our living hope. Chapter 2, he told us that we are living stones attached to Jesus and to each other. The corn, Jesus is the cornerstone of our righteousness. In chapter 3, he was talking about our suffering. And he reminded us that Christ also suffered in order that he might bring us to God. In chapter 4, he told us that our souls are actually entrusted to a faithful God. And here we are in chapter 5. He's doing it all over again. But listen to this promise in verse 10. It is profound. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Let me say that again. He himself will restore, confirm, 
strengthen, and establish you. Listen, as promises go, they don't get much greater than that. Because first, it is a promise that he heals what's broken. That word restore can also be translated mend. It was used to describe what Peter was up to when Jesus first met him. Jesus comes to Peter and what is Peter doing? He is mending the nets. It can also be used to describe what a physician does when he sets a broken bone. And here Peter is using that word to describe what God does for each one of us. He heals what's broken. And he will also confirm us. Confirm us means to stand us up on our own two feet. When Paul was giving an account of his conversion on the Damascus road, I think this is Acts 26. One of the things he said Jesus did when he met Jesus was Jesus. He got knocked off his horse and Jesus himself stood him up. And so not only does he heal what's broken, he also fortifies what's weak. Because those two words, strengthen and establish, are architectural by nature. They echo Peter's earlier uh, teaching about how we're all living stones being built up into a spiritual house of God. And so he's reminding us yet again that all of our stability and all of our security are found in Jesus Christ himself because he fortifies the weak. He heals what's broken and he fortifies the weak. And the image that we're given here of what God does with us is similar to a story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. Many of of us have heard that story over and over and over again. When Jesus told the story, he he, he told the story about a man who was on a journey and he was beaten up by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road. And many, many people passed him by until the most unlikely candidate came to him. And what did he do? He stood him up, he gave him medicine, And he personally paid for that person's healing. And you know what Jesus called that? The word he used to describe what the Samaritan did for this person? He called it, he called it mercy. And the story of the gospel is that Jesus comes to us as a people, not as a people who present well. He, not as a people who mostly have their lives like squared away and just need a little help. He comes to us as a people who are helpless. As a people who are bruised and broken by the fall. As a people who are desperate for the kind of mercy that only Jesus provides. And listen, when Jesus gives you mercy, he doesn't take it back. That mercy is as sure and as stable today as it was the first day he gave it to you. He never takes it back. The most stable ground that you ever find yourself on is at the foot of the cross, stained by the blood of Jesus, that cleanses you from your sin. Because just as the mercy of Jesus is permanently etched on your heart, listen, your name is etched on the heart of Jesus. What did we sing earlier? My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. So we can spend our lives 
searching with a kind of quiet desperation for the very things that are being promised to us in this passage. And listen, like, I'm not just saying, like, everything can feel tenuous. And, And I'm not just saying that because it's March and all of our brackets are busted right now. Every single one of them. But like, I'll go into my day with, and, and I think a lot of you can identify with this, I'll go into my day with a plan of what it's supposed to look like. I'll, I'll, have, I'll have goals, like, kind of listed out, a calendar that I'm trying to keep to, real hopes of what will be accomplished by, by, uh, by the time I'm done with work that day, and like hopes for what my evening will look like. And all it takes is a phone call. Like, a phone call will come in, and, and listen, I don't have any... When I'm telling this story, I don't have anybody in this room in particular in mind when I'm saying this. But all it will take is a phone call. And, and like my whole day is about to change. Like every day, every, almost every moment of every day, we're reminded that our days and our moments are not our own. Our whole lives are not our own. And for the Christian, that's a comfort. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong to my body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus fought for your eternal glory, when he suffered and died for your eternal glory, he wasn't playing around. Your name is written on his heart, and he promises to restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's his promise given to you. So you find rest in his character, and you find rest in his promises. Peter goes on to talk about God's people. And you you really saw this throughout the letter, that he is always calling us to give certain special attention to each other as God's people. Um, and he does it again here in this passage. He, he, he started in verse 9. He says, remember the sufferings that were being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Uh, so he mentions our brotherhood all over the world. Uh, the shameless plug, there is a, a, a great website that, uh, called opendoor.org. If you go there, you're going to see uh, an analysis of our brothers and sisters all over the world who, ex- who are experiencing persecution and suffering for your faith. Go there and pray for your brothers and sisters. Um, and in verse, in verse 12, he goes on. He starts mentioning specific people. Uh, a man named Sil- Silvanus, 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 I, I don't know. Um, but that's, that, that's probably the name Silas. And you see Silas mentioned in three different stories in Acts. He, he was a, a prominent member of the, uh, that contributed to the work of the early church. Paul mentioned him twice in two, two of his letters. Uh, and he's mentioned here because he's most likely the bearer of Peter's letter that brings the letter to these people in Asia Minor. In verse 13, he mentions she who is at Babylon. Now, what in the world is that? That's probably a reference to the church in Rome that Peter is with. Uh, Babylon as a city was in ruins at this point in history. So he's talking, uh, he's drawing an equivalent to what life was like in Rome for the Christian in that time. And he's saying, she, these people who are, who are in Rome, these Christ followers bid you, uh, a greeting. And then finally he mentions Mark. And that would be John Mark. John Mark, uh, is a man, uh, who was known for his close relationship with Peter. He, 
He, uh, this is the one that wrote the gospel of Mark. And it would be fair to ask, as we draw to the close of this letter, why is Paul naming all of these people? And one of the things he's doing is he's saying, as you remember God's people, remember that these people are your family. Notice the the family language that Peter uses as he describes all of them. He says, your brotherhood around the world. Uh, Sylvanus, a faithful brother, Mark, my son. He's telling them that they're not alone, but they belong to each other. Remember each other, is what he's saying. And not for nothing, but we, 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 uh, we rehearse this, we proclaim this truth to each other just earlier in the service. When the family, the family joined the church and we baptized little Robert and Nicholas, like we are, we are acting out, living out, committing ourselves to these family commitments that we give to each other. We're the ones that stand and say, I will pray for and support these families. We have a radical family commitment to each other. And just as he's saying that remember that these people are your family, he's also saying these people, God's people, are your reminder that that the peace of God, the love of God, the rest that his character and his promises invite you to are true. That we are responsible for bearing out the reminders that the gospel is true in each other's lives. He says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, that would have been a cultural practice. Don't try to come up here and give me a kiss of love after the service. Like that, you know, we don't, we don't all need to start doing that. But we are responsible for reminding each other of the truth of love. That just as God loves us through Jesus Christ, we are bound to extend love to one another. That is, that is it. And then he says, uh, we remind each other of the peace that we have in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And the simple... The simple point is this one. One of the ways that God mediates his peace and his love to us is that he gives us each other. That we are each other's everyday reminders that these things that God is telling us are true. Let me close this way. I came across a story a few days ago. Uh, and I have to just give you a disclaimer. I couldn't fact check it or like the details are kind of sketchy. So it might not be a true story, but it makes a good point, And so I'm going to give it to you anyway. Uh, and it was, it's about a farmer who grows corn. Uh, and, uh, this farmer who grows corn is, uh, is the best corn grower in the area that he lives in. And he has won his county's award for the best corn, the most delicious corn, corn for several years in a row now. He just, keeps winning, growing this amazing corn. And finally, a reporter comes up to him and asks him uh, what, how in the world he always seemed to be growing such delicious corn. And the farmer said that it was simple, that he shares his seed with his neighbors so that they can also grow wonderful corn. And of course, the reporter is stunned because you don't do this. If you grow corn, you keep your best seed for yourself. And so he says, how can you afford to give away your best seed to your neighbors? And the, uh, the farmer looked at him and he said, don't you understand the way corn works? He said, the wind picks up pollen from corn and blows it from field to field. 
And so if my neighbors grow bad corn, it's going to hurt the quality of my corn. If I am to grow good corn, I must help my neighbors grow good, grow good corn. Now look, I don't, I'm, not, I'm looking out at you, I don't see any corn farmers out here. But, but the metaphor works, doesn't it? And our responsibility that we have to each other. That we give to each other the good things that God has given to us first. That just as Jesus joins us to, to himself, he also joins us to each other. So we gather together to remind each other of what we believe as we journey home together on this pilgrimage that we share. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you will help us. Help us lead each other on in this battle to trust that your character and your promises are sure. Manifest these things amongst us as your people. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.